0: This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network.
1: Today on Government Matters, in August, the Department of the Air Force launched a new pilot program to make it easier for victims of sexual assault and harassment to access services. Undersecretary of the Air Force, Gina Ortiz-Jones, gives us an update. Then, at a recent White House summit, agencies engaged with tribal leaders and announced new efforts to improve collaboration. We talked to the Director of the Office of Tribal Relations at the Department of Agriculture. Government Matters starts right now.
0: From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges.
1: This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gerges. According to the latest DOD report, more than 35,000 troops reported unwanted sexual contact in fiscal year 2021. The report also found that trust in the way the military handles such cases has dropped. The Air Force recently launched a new pilot program to better address the issue. Gina Ortiz-Jones is the Undersecretary of the Air Force. Undersecretary Jones, welcome to the program. Good
2: morning, thank you.
1: What was behind the decision to launch that new pilot program what's the problem you're trying to solve
2: well this is really about taking care of people right you know secretary austin uh, and, and deputy secretary hicks this addressing this issue in particular Um, has been a priority for them with with the um, Independent Review Commission again that was um, directed uh, in the very early stages of of when they came in and so this based on the findings of that report as well as some of the information that we have within the Department of the Air Force internally we knew we needed to do a better job of of protecting um, survivors and victims and we really wanted to ensure there was clarity in terms of what was available to them Um, um, you know should they be a victim Um, how they could report it and again, how we could best support them. And so one of the challenges we kept hearing from victims was this lack of understanding about who they reach out to, where they go to. And um, so really the the intent here is to co-locate these services. You know, people talk about no wrong door. Um, But putting myself in the shoes of a victim, I would want to know where where is the door? Where do I need to go if I want to help myself? And that's really the intent of of the of the co-location pilot put all of these resources together um, And to do a couple of things one the victim knows exactly where they need to go, but also as response providers um, How might we better collect the data about what happened here, right? Somebody may have walked in um, and the issue was domestic violence or sexual assault, but maybe there are other things that that happened as part of that um, interpersonal violence experience. Was there grooming? Was there stalking? Was there financial abuse? So really, by co-locating these efforts, it helps with our data collection. It helps us better understand holistically what happened. Um, it also, most importantly, ensures that we are not needlessly re-traumatizing survivors by having them go to all these different places and retelling their story several times. So I think these are no- there's a number of things that we were trying to, to get after with this pilot. So
1: I understand what you're saying about co-locating how does it work practically are you creating a new building is it are you using one of your existing locations and how do you get everybody you know you might have medical you might have the chaplain does that work to put everybody together
2: it's a really good question um, and we have uh identified six locations to to again work through what what are some of these issues um to your point the logistics of it Right? Um, and, and in the course of this, we'll understand what are those additional requirements, IT, um, IT requirements, for example, even just ensuring that the facility has the appropriate privacy protections, right? How do we account for all of those things to ensure that we are best supporting the, the survivors? Um, But, yes, we are co-locating response providers right next to uh, religious support team elements, uh, right next to um, those that can also help with um, domestic violence. So, again, it's a range of interpersonal violence um, um, instances that we're trying to address here. And we have found, um, at least qualitatively and in some of the quantitative feedback, um, real uh, positive feedback to, again, understanding where people need to go and helping us understand truly what happened in each of these instances. Spell
1: out the crimes that this uh, pilot program covers. It's not just sexual assault and harassment. You mentioned domestic violence. That's
2: right. That's right. Um, in, in particular, those types of um, uh, those are the those are the main ones that folks are, are um, uh, coming to the uh, to the pilot and, and seeking resources for. Um, I think what it's also been very helpful for is for those folks that um, maybe are not experts in these things, but they know something is just not quite right. Coming in and helping folks understand, oh, you know what, that, that's actually financial abuse or actually, no, that's grooming, right? And I think what's also been helpful then is people understand um, what it is they may be experiencing. I think it's also helpful as we gather this data that this helps us p- inform our prevention efforts. Because we, again, we want folks to know exactly what they are experiencing so we can inform our frontline supervisors, our young officers, when they see these things, how can they again ensure that these uh, their airmen, their guardians have the reason, and frankly, their family members, also have the resources uh, that they need to, to address these things.
1: And you mentioned that these are at six bases. That's right. And you visited some of those. I did. Tell me about those visits. Yeah. What did, what did people tell you when you went the, over there?
2: Yeah, so really proud of the six bases that are that have participated. Uh, Joint Base San Antonio, Joint Base Langley-Eustis, that was just at Vandenberg Space Force Base, a couple of the other bases. We've got one overseas base involved, Misawa Air, Air Base, um, as well as um, Offutt Air Force Base. And um, I, the, the initial feedback is, again, quite positive, I think, um, especially among the response providers, which we also really wanted to ensure that we were best providing them the support they needed to support our victims. And um, qualitatively, we are hearing good things about their ability to work together, quickly identify, um, you know, if, if, it's, if something is not in their wheelhouse, they know exactly who they need to refer that that person to to ensure that they're well supported. So um, again, the synergy, I think, that is achieved by being co-located is um, it, we are excited about about that and I think we have seen in the places where it's co-located an increased understanding of where victims need to go so a higher rate of folks self-referring now certainly there are a number of things that could contribute to that but I think knowing where to go is certainly a key part in person in a in person pursuing to um, to utilize those resources so again again no wrong door but you know where is the door where do victims need to go if they need to go if they want to help themselves I think that was a, a key part that we try to address for this co-location pilot and
1: pilot programs have an end date that's right so what happens when this pilot
2: program expires? Right. Well, we're con- collecting, uh, continuing to collect the data qualitatively and, and quantitatively. Um, and survey certainly, uh, you know, base leadership, this, the response um, uh, providers, um, as well as look at the data that has come in from folks that have actually used these things um, to understand uh, what is the right path forward. I think, um, based on how well though the pilot has gone in, in many places, uh, there's certainly benefit at this point in, in expanding it. So this will the the pilot will um, uh, will complete in uh, at at the end of January, and that'll be six months worth of data that will that we'll have. Um, and again, this is about not taking forever in a day right we know you know what right looks like we're about helping people i think we've got we're going to have sufficient data at that point to uh, to make a decision um, one way or another
1: all right undersecretary jones we're going to pause here and we'll come back thank you stay with us we'll have more of our conversation with air force undersecretary gina ortiz jones on the other side of the break i'm back with gina ortiz jones the undersecretary of the air force Under Secretary Jones, uh, this year's National Defense Authorization Act, the NDAA, it was passed by the House. It includes changes to how the military prosecutes sexual crimes. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about those changes and what impact they'll have?
2: Sure. Uh, well, look, we continue to be appreciative of the way in which leaders on the Hill take this issue uh, as seriously as we do within the department. And so uh, we have already moved out very quickly to, to stand up uh, the Office of uh, Special Trial Counsel. Um, this is, again, those those individuals that are going to be responsible for covering these covered offenses. Uh, we understand the potential that one of those covered offenses could be sexual harassment, and, and uh, you know, we'll obviously resource that um, and, and ensure that that is executed appropriately. Again, this is within a broader group of all the initiatives that we within the Department of the Air Force and certainly the Department of the Defense are, are executing to ensure that we're supporting victims of, of interpersonal violence and, and certainly sexual assault, sexual harassment um, specifically.
1: You know, New York Senator Gillibrand and, and others have really been advocating for this for years, okay. you know, maybe like 10 years. Why did it take so long to get to this point? Was there reluctance on the part of the services?
2: Well, you know, I, uh, I can't speak to, to 10 years. I can, I can speak to the time that I've been in the seat. Um, and there has been a, frankly, we probably have a meeting on this um, with the senior levels of the department, um, once a month it seems like and so there is active attention we are a- actively monitoring the implementation of uh, the independent review Commission and all of those recommendations very proud of the way in which the department of the uh, of the Air Force has accelerated some of those things um, to include actually the uh, uh, looking at a co location pilot like we talked about you like we talked about earlier so um, we are moving out on this as important as as much as we are moving out on anything given again the importance that this has not only on on those serving but frankly message of service to those that are thinking about their service in the department of the air force
1: speaking of the ndaa you know as of this taping we do not yet have a budget operating under a cr Mm -hmm. talk about the impact that crs have been having on the air force
2: yeah well crs are devastating Um, let's be very clear about what a year-long CR would would mean in this instance. That would be a reduction in $12 billion of our buying power. Um, And we can talk about the mechanics of of a CR and what that means program by program, happy to do that. But when I think about a CR, I have to think about the guidance that we just got, which is the new national security strategy. And there are two points in there that are really important. Um, That one, this is the decisive decade. This is the decisive decade. China is our pacing challenge and we have to be serious about the way in which they continue to challenge our security, our interests, and our values. Secondly, for those that don't want to read the whole national security strategy, read just the last six words. The last six words, there is no time to waste. So reducing needlessly our buying power by $12 billion, right? Um, uh, compromising the the status of 28 key modernization projects that happen, frankly, across 13 states for a total of $13 billion. Some of these are our most important modernization projects. Sentinel, our follow-on to the Intercontinental Ballistic Missile, KC-46, B-21, our European European Defense Initiative. So, um, look, we have a clear mandate in the National Security Strategy and in the National Defense Strategy. We can only implement that, though, if we have the resources to do so. And we have to be smart with the American people money
1: i want to ask you about that b21 bomber the raider yeah. uh, i know details are are, are still limited but right. what can you share about that
2: it's amazing uh, <laughs> i was fortunate to be at the at the unveiling and it's uh, such a testament uh, to not only the new way in which we're doing engineering again if you look at how quickly that platform came online um, but also what that's going to be able to, to provide um, in our bomber fleet again as we look to modernize um, and prepare for potentially a you know a high-end fight um, I will say what was also important about that unveiling that folks not might not quite not appreciate is we had two of our key partners and allies at that unveiling. We had representatives from the UK as well as from Australia. So when we are thinking about our modernization capabilities. We are thinking about um, certainly uh, the way in which our partners and allies feed into those programs. So very excited that they were there and um, excited about what that modernization program um, alongside the, uh, the Sentinel, which is again the follow-on to the intercontinental missile, what that means to our ability to to execute the national security strategy and national defense strategy.
1: We spoke to uh, Secretary Kendall uh, several months ago, Mm. and we asked him about hypersonics. He Mm. said that that was moving forward. Mm -hmm. What can you tell us? Any new updates on that?
2: Uh, there really isn't at at, at this point. Um, I mean, I think we're we're excited about the uh, the progress that we're that we're making, and uh, you know, look forward to making those those um, those those critical investments. But again, that all re- that relies on us having the resources uh, to do that. And and, and um, the number of new starts we didn't talk about that. But the number of new starts that would be halted as a result of the CR 61 would be halted for six uh, 61 would be halted at a cost of 5.1 billion dollars. So again, yes, lots of things underway. Uh, to ensure that we are ready for the to to address the uh, the best, the pacing challenge um, and we've got to resource those things.
1: You know, a big issue across the board has been recruiting mm-hmm. and retention in the services. Mm-hmm. How is the Department of the Air Force doing on that?
2: Well, I think there's a couple of things that are affecting the overall environment for all the services. Certainly the state of the economy uh, certainly, um, um, uh, but, I, but I think what we are focused with the Department of the Air Force is, again, is highlighting the opportunities to serve. It's a high calling to serve, um, and, and, and less than 1 percent will wear the nation's cloth. Um, and so I think we're really leaning into, again, the, um, the, the unique opportunities for, for to, to when you are an airman or a guardian. Um, and I think we are also actively looking at ways in which we can tailor our message for, um, for folks, for communities that maybe haven't, aren't, don't have a lot of experience with the military. Uh, we know the number one indicator of whether somebody will serve is if they know somebody who serves. And so with a smaller and smaller population who's actively serving, who, or who has experience serving, we know it's important that we're more targeted in our outreach and we're working to do that.
1: 30 seconds, looking ahead to 2023, what's your biggest priority?
2: Well, you know, again, we take those those six words to heart. There is no time to lose, and so making sure that we're moving forward on our key modernization projects. Very excited, you know, we haven't talked about it. Uh, maybe Secretary Kendall mentioned it, but again, we've got some really innovative projects. You know, the the, the teaming, the crude uncrude platforms, the ways in which we are looking to transition our space architecture to one that is more resilient, um, uh, is is also important and not only for the Department of the Air Force, but for the criticality of those those efforts for the entire joint force, and again, for our ability. To execute that national security strategy,
1: Under Secretary Jones, thanks so much for being on the program. Thank you. Stay with us. We'll be right back. The White House held a tribal nations summit recently to support Native American and Alaska Native tribes. Heather Don Thompson is director of the Office of Tribal Relations at the USDA. Heather, welcome to the program. It's good to see you, Mimi. Tell us about the Department of Agriculture's role in tribal relations and your specific role as the director of that office.
3: My pleasure. So when many people think about the United States government and tribal nations, they of course think about the Department of Interior, uh, where the Office of Bureau of Indian Affairs is located. But when the United States signed the treaties with tribal nations, it wasn't the Department of Interior that signed those treaties, it was the entire federal government. The entire United States. And so all federal agencies have a trust and treaty responsibility with tribal nations. And we think at the USDA we have a very special role in that relationship. At the United States Department of Agriculture, many people think of us as the farming entity. And of course, that's true. We're very proud of those roots. But in addition to farming, we're also food for the US Forest Service. We are economic, rural economic development, and we are rural food and agriculture research. So pretty much anything that touches on the lives of rural America and most of Indian country is in rural America. And so we have a very unique relationship with Indian country and And that's our job.
1: Uh, Sorry, I was going to ask you about the, the USDA announcing the creation
3: of a tribal advisory committee. What will it do? Who will be on it? That's our job, exactly right, is to have that relationship with tribal nations directly. And the tribal advisory committee is going to be created jointly between Congress and the United States Department of Agriculture to provide a direct voice from Indian country to help us advise us on each of those issues, farming, food, forests, research. And we're really looking forward to having that advisory committee finally set up.
1: Well, let's talk about food, because your department is helping empower states and tribes and territories to purchase local and regional foods. Why is that important? How is USDA supporting that?
3: We're very excited about this initiative as many know a lot of our purchasing has done been done federally and at the national level and that hasn't been a particularly good path for a lot of our smaller families and producers. uh, And our tribal producers and so our indigenous food sovereignty initiative our local food purchasing agreements those are empowering states local governments uh, tribal nations to purchase directly from their local producers and tribal producers and make those decisions that are best for the nutrition and food of their own communities. And what about food insecurity?
1: How is the USDA addressing that in Indian country?
3: Indian country has a very unique take on food insecurity. Tribal nations are very committed to growing the food themselves or what they called food sovereignty. And so we're really trying to empower that path for them. How can we help them Recreate local food systems with the plants and the animals that are indigenous to that region and therefore thrive the best in that region, particularly with our changing climate.
1: And you mentioned food sovereignty. There's also indigenous seed sovereignty. So, explain what that is and USDA's efforts
3: there. Tribal nations have been wanting to preserve their heritage um, plants for a long time, and it can be quite challenging. And so we have seed banks ourselves at USDA. We are the national seed bank, but we are also helping tribal nations learn how to save those seeds, dry them properly so that they will last a long time and create redundancy. So there are multiple places where these seeds are saved and protected so that these heritage seeds can be grown for multiple generations coming.
1: And Heather, can you talk a little bit about your own background and what you bring to this position?
3: I'm a citizen of the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe which is located in South Dakota and I've been a practicing attorney in economic development for tribes for 20 some years and my subspecialty is in agricultural economic development and food sovereignty so I am delighted to now have this position with the secretary at USDA to implement many of the things we've been thinking about for a long time.
1: And speaking of implementing your your priorities, you know, you've been in in the position for almost two years. What accomplishments can you point to that you're most proud of? And, And then what are you going to be looking at for top priorities for next year?
3: I think one of the two accomplishments we're particularly proud of is the Indigenous Food Sovereignty Initiative, because the tribes have told us how important that is to them. And the way we are viewing that is if the United States Department of Agriculture had been created from an indigenous lens, it would look quite differently we'd be uh, growing different foods and supporting different animals and so we're really trying to take that very seriously. The second accomplishment that we're very proud of is with our forests many of our us forests are former treaty lands former tribal homelands and we just announced 11 co stewardship agreements and 60 more in the works that give tribal nations more say and input into the land management. This upcoming year we're looking on really building on those accomplishments, but we're also looking to removing barriers. As I had shared, if we had created USDA from an indigenous or tribal perspective, things would be a little different. And what that means is sometimes it's quite challenging for tribes to access our program. We're the seventh largest bank in the United States when you add up all of our programs. And we want to make sure that everybody has an opportunity to access those programs, including our tribal nations.
1: And Heather, finally, what kind of feedback are you getting from tribal governments and citizens on
3: USDA's initiatives? Of course, we still have improvements to make, but overall, the feedback has been very positive. I think tribal nations and Native Americans feel heard by the United States Department of Agriculture and feel like they have an opportunity to really participate in our food, farming, forests, um, and are excited about this partnership.
1: All right, well, Heather Don Thompson, nice to talk to you and good luck with all those initiatives. Thank you. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's at govmatters.tv. You can get a preview and a recap of each show when you sign up for our daily newsletters. You can sign up for our email list on our homepage. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges.
0: Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems.
1: I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government?
4: What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people, in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years, have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber, and, and satellite, of course.
1: Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen Five because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service.
4: It is. It is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in two thousand and sixteen, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, 4, which was known as Gen Four, that are called high-throughput satellites, and these are satellite services that took satellite In the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical.
1: All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you.
4: Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you.
0: Thanks for listening. Our Daily Show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our Managing Director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit GovMatters.tv for articles, videos, and more.